Talk, talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Ed Mamet and Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective, and I'm here with my co-host, retired captain of police NYPD, Ed Mamet. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here with Kevin and our guest. So today our guest is a retired police officer, Joe Murray, who uh, has a, a great resume here. I mean, he's done everything. I don't think there's anything that Joe has not done. He was a police officer in Midtown North with the NYPD. He was a boxer for the NYPD team, knocked out many guys in that ring. I observed a few of those boxing matches. And then he went to law school, and now he defends many police officers throughout the country who get jammed up either with their department or criminally. So, Joe Murray, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Kev. It's so good to be here. And Cap, good to see you, too. It's a pleasure talking to you before the show. So, Joe, why don't you bring us back to, you know, Midtown North Precinct when you worked there, and basically, let's go with when you retired, how you got into becoming a defense attorney, and with so many high popular cases. Oh, so many, so many incredible things. But let me just start, because that was my first command, Midtown North. That's where I got, well, you know, we did our training unit, but then... That was my first permanent command. And at the time, my father was on the job. He came on in 68, and then he rolled over to the fire department. So he was like, make sure you take both tests. And, and you know, okay, Dad, you know, I, I took both tests. But I got to Midtown North, and if you remember, at that time, the fire physical test was being done at Columbus Circle. And one of the applicants died while taking the test. So they suspended any further testing temporarily to reevaluate the conditions of the test. So that gave me more time to spend in the land of milk and honey of Midtown North. And by the time they reinstated the test, I was like, Dad, I don't think I want to be a fireman. I was having so much fun. It was such a great... We were like, you know, when you're young and on the job, you're chasing bad guys, you know, you're, you're solving cases and running down, you know, criminals. I had so much fun. Plus, it's the theater district, restaurants, hotels. I'm a young guy. I was 20 years old when I came on the job. I'm meeting girls. I'm having fun. I'm going to parties. I was like, I don't want to run into fires. <laughs> I'd rather you. do this. Me. Who does? Oh, so it was so much fun. And I think it was Brian McCabe who we worked with over there. He put me in touch with Carl Schroeder, who was the coach of the boxing team. Carl's a real tough guy, you know, detective, hard nose. And we went to train with them. And it was fantastic. I loved it. Like I said, I was an athlete, you know, my whole life. And then coming on the job so young, I wanted to get into sports. So I started boxing. And it just came natural to me. And, you know, I grew up with four brothers. I'm, I'm the middle guy. I was fighting my whole life. So it, it was pretty uh, natural to me. But, you know, eventually I had a little misfortune. And my partner, Andy Burns, and I, we had a little incident over at St. Pat's. that you know, right. St. Pat's Cathedral. And then from there you, you both were transferred. And They gave us a wonderful career change. They sent him to the 5th and me to the 7th Precinct, which, you know, Instead of hanging out in the wonderful bars of Midtown Manhattan, I was, you know, drinking a bottle underneath the bridge, you know, the Williamsburg Bridge. But not to be deterred, I continued my boxing and I loved 
you know, being on the team. We went to England, Ireland, all over the country, fighting, representing the department, sometimes internationally. It was such an amazing experience. Unfortunately, in September of 1993, September 9th, 1993, I remember the date well, I had a friend of mine who was arrested by a detective. There were actually three detectives, and this one guy really just had it in for him, handcuffed him, slapped him around. It was an old domestic violence case from like nine months ago. So they went out to Nassau County from the 10th precinct to, to arrest them. So I thought it all just sounded so weird. He seemed to think his ex-girlfriend had a friend who was a cop and blah, blah, blah. So I said, you know what? Let me see. I'll go to my squad because I was pretty active in my command. I had a great rapport with my squad. Let, maybe they know this guy. So they make a quote. No, they, they actually told me that we don't even know him. So I went to the 10th precinct because I pride myself on I'm a good talker and I've I've used my skills on patrol, uh, de-escalation, and I can handle this. But as soon as I mention my friend's name to this detective, he starts inflating his chest, poking me in my chest, your friends and F and this and that. So I push his hand off of me and I say, yeah, well, he says you handcuffed him and smacked him around. He shoves me. I shove him back. He throws a punch. I'm a little better at it than he is. I break his jaw. So now I'm in full uniform in the 10th precinct. I'm a 7th precinct cop. And this guy's like, get up, get up. <laughs> what do you do? So basically you knocked him out. Was this in the squad, the squad room, the technical squad room? In the we 10th were precinct? actually in, ironically, the arrest processing room. So I didn't have to go far. They arrested me right there in uniform for assaulting two counts. I hit him once. Two counts of assault, too. A serious physical injury and assaulting a police officer. It was incredible. While you were in uniform. While I was on duty in uniform. You, I think I'm the only one in the history. You can't write a better script. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. So, but it was really funny because being on the boxing team, I had a lot of hooks, a lot of friends. So one of the cops in the, I think it was Stacy, was one of the cops in the 10th precinct got word to my patrol supervisor Jimmy the Rock Ronan, you could not have been a better sergeant in the world. I put Dana Martillo right with him, but this guy was the best. So he knows I have a rabbi down in the 7th Precinct, this guy, Shalom Eisen, who's a department chaplain. He's legit. And so he went to Shalom, and Shalom calls the duty captain, who at the time was Michael Reese. He's like, yeah, one of our seven precinct guys got in a little thing with a detective. So Alvis comes in and he says, look, I'm going to take you out of the arrest processing room, put you in the CO's office. He asked me what happened. I told him what happened. And he says, let's see if we can, you know, figure this out. So I was like, wow, that's great. So the detectives get so upset, they call the chief of detectives, Joe Borelli at the time. And Joe Borelli wants to back up his guys, and I admire him for that. And he orders the captain, get that piece of back into the arrest processing room. It was a whole Megillah. It was really fun. It was the Battle of the Chiefs. Oh, it was, it was incredible. Battle of the Badges. So make a long story short, shorter, 
my good friend, Mike Loyal, who was on the boxing team with me, he was a heavyweight. He was also a seven precinct cop and did late tours. So I was doing day tours and he was hanging out. You know how the late tour hangs out? He comes up to the 10th precinct, lies to everyone. He says, I'm the alternate delegate. I'm here to see Joe Murray. And he comes in and he sees I'm getting collared. He won't let them near me. He goes, I'm going to fingerprint him. I'll do the paperwork. Like he wouldn't let IAB near me. So he's doing all that. He gets it all done. Now they got to transport me down to central booking. Joe, did they let you change out of uniform for the transport? It's so funny because they weren't going to let me get changed. They wanted me to go through the system in uniform. So Mike Loyal, again, he was on the box team with me. He was like, over my dead body, is he going to central booking in uniform? He went. I gave him my combination. He went, got my clothes, whatever. So, but Mike was such a great guy. So now they're transporting me. So it's the IAB lieutenant and the sergeant in the front seat of the car. And Mike was the escort. He's off duty. He's, he's not even a delegate. So he worked his way in to be my escort and sitting in the back seat behind the driver. And I'm in the passenger seat and he wouldn't let them cuff me. Refuse. No, you're not cuffing them. I'm sitting next to him. So it's day tour, and we're driving down the FDR Drive, and it's gridlock traffic. And I'm looking out the window, and I'm looking at FDR Park, and I'm like, I lean over to Mike. And this is how you know what a great guy is. I lean over to Mike. I say, hey, Mike, I think I'm going to make a run for it. So, so he goes. Unbelievable. He goes, where are you going to go? I was like, not to jail. So he goes, listen, we're Manhattan cops. We make cars all the time. We'll talk to the DAs. Don't worry about it. It's all right. No, but the first thing he says, though, which is so funny, I blew this whole thing. He goes, well, you, you better hit me, but don't break my jaw. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like he, he was ready to go with yeah. it. Yeah. So, but anyway, so we go out. I get arraigned. I have a great lawyer who represented me. I went into the grand jury. It was a wonderful, ethical ADA, Mike Scotto, who really saw this for what it was and was so fair with us. I'm friends with him today. Mike uh, Scott, didn't he run for uh He ran for DA County? in Nassau County. He did, okay. Yeah. What was the disposition of this whole thing? So what did you want to become a lawyer after? He put us both in the grand jury. We told our stories. I I talked to that grand jury. I hit him once in self-defense and I backed up. That was it. So no true bill, right? The job wants to fire me now. I said, you want to fire me? You couldn't even indict me. So I end up getting Bruce Cutler. My criminal lawyer referred me to Bruce. Now, Bruce, although he's like the mob lawyer, his father, Murray Cutler, was a detective on the job, and he was also a lawyer. And he represented a lot of cops, and he worked as a Brooklyn DA for a long time and had great rapport with detectives and the job. So Bruce does his magic. I get a nolo contendere. 60 days, years probation, nolo contendere. I, and Joe, this was in the trial room? The trial room. NYPD trial room. The importance of that, because they kept coming back with offers, he sued me, this detective, for a million dollars. So if I pled guilty to something in the trial room, it would impact me on the civil case. So Bruce got me that nolo contendere. Finally, I know it's a long story, but you got to hear this. Sure. Eight years it takes to go to trial. Finally, we go to trial. 
not too happy about Pat Lynch because right before I go to trial, they pull out my lawyers. I had to sue the union to represent me. It got so political and so ugly. I had to sue them. And then when Pat Lynch got elected, he decided no more conflict counsel because they were they were representing other cops that were there, like my partner and other cops in the 10th precinct. And it was a conflict to have the same firm represent me. So they hired conflict counsel. So Pat Lynch pulls my lawyer at the last minute right before trial. So the judge is like, well, look, this is not like criminal. You have to either hire a lawyer or do it yourself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Joe the Boxer (laughs) did it himself. Joe the Cop, Joe the Boxer became the best My Cousin Vinny you ever saw. Two-week trial, nine witnesses. I did not have a losing day. And when he rested, I rested. I was like, fine. That's all you got? (laughs) So... So the jury came back with a defense verdict. I was totally exonerated again. And the judge, Joan Madden, God bless her, she was a wonderful judge. She was she really just carved out when all the lawyers are arguing because it was the plaintiff's lawyer and court counsel because he was suing everyone. So she actually said to me, Officer Murray did an amazing job with this trial that you should consider going to law school. That was it for me. I packed it in, retired. I had 15 years on. I vested. I had to finish my undergrad and then go to law school, and the rest is history. It's It's been a ride and a half. So at that point is when you decided to go to law school. 100%. I mean, I I, I really just saw, you know how you're in court and, and you're on the stand, and like some of these ADAs just don't know how to defend you. You're getting picked off by the defense attorney. You're hoping they're going to rehabilitate you, and they don't. Or vice versa, some of these defense attorneys, I'm like, good God, how did you get your license? You know, like I had this inferiority complex because I didn't, I barely graduated high school. How am I going to do this? But being a cop and dealing with these lawyers, I'm like, they're no better than us. We could do this. Right. That's an amazing story. Now, Joe, is there any cases you can talk to us about that regards involving police officers that you represented? I absolutely love the fact that I am now a retired police officer coming back as a lawyer to defend other cops because it's a very lonely, lonely feeling when you're, you know, hung out to dry. When you're accused of a crime, we talk about the presumption of innocence. That doesn't exist. Right. Everyone assumes you're guilty. There were a lot of cops I was very disappointed in who just kind of gave me the cold shoulder after that. You know, I was very disappointed. So one of the greatest feelings was coming back doing my first department trial because I was like, I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Here I am. am. And I was their worst nightmare. And I love doing that. And having been through that horrible experience, you know, eight years of it till it finally wrapped up, 
I really sympathize with what these cops, especially today, what they go through between the harassment on the job by the, you know, the captains over there, the harassment. (laughs) And then, you know, the public, this whole defund the police thing. It got so bad, Kev. You know, in 2019, I was asked and invited to run for district attorney in in Queens County. But if you remember, that was the water bucket dumping on cops, the total breakdown of respect and decorum for police officers. We were coming in with that defund the police nonsense. So I said, absolutely, I will step up and I will run and, and give a voice to all the officers out there who are so downtrodden. You know, they're being abused. Right, right. Captain? When I retired, which was almost, uh, how many years ago? About 25 years ago. I know. Easy, steady. (laughs) (laughs) I said, what am I going to do with myself? You know, I didn't want to become a private investigator. Everybody was doing that. And I realized that there was so much litigation involving police, you know, lawsuits. I said, you know, maybe I should become an expert witness because I had the expertise. I did 40 years in the department. And so I started to do expert work. And before you know it, I was had my hands full. I had more cases than I could handle. You see that? I had cases in federal court and state court. I testified in Puerto Rico. I was in Washington, D.C., Chicago. I was all over the place. And so I got a very uh, good idea of what this was all about. And I had a lot of force cases, chase cases. So I became almost like a lawyer myself. I learned an awful lot about the legal profession. Yes, of course. And the more cases I I had, the more I was charging. I started to raise my rates. I did quite well. There you go. And now I'm now retired from that. Well, let's see if I can influence you a little bit. (laughs) But, you know, I even testified in the trial room, which everybody says is a kangaroo court. Yeah. In fact, one of the biggest embarrassments of my life is when I had almost... 38 years, and I wound up in a trial room for disobeying an order. <laughs> I was a captain, and I took on a chief without getting into names. It was a whole thing, and I wound up getting 10-day vacation for disobeying an order. Wow. You know, wow. so I, I, I know what it's like. Yeah, that's it's a tough way to go, that trial room. I mean, it, it is. When we say kangaroo court, it's because a kangaroo with the pouch— the police department is the kangaroo. The court is their employees of the police department. So that's why they're considered the kangaroo. They're in the pouch of the police department, you know. So you don't get a fair shake there. It's, it's And they make it obvious, too. The last trial that I just did involved this wonderful, wonderful sergeant, you know, and we were all on the job and were cops on our patrol You know you have a good boss who's constantly, constantly looking out and trying to account for all her members, you know, her officers, puts herself, leads from the front, you know? Like, we didn't see this inspector that she encountered the rest of the night, but she was right out there and stood in front of her cops between the protesters and the cops, which I admire so much. She is so honorable in the way that she conducts herself. So what? She had these patches on. They're minor violations. But here's what the real story is. The First Amendment protects you for your political beliefs. You have an absolute right to like and support anyone you want. You don't have a right to support 
a candidate for public office on duty, you know, that's against the department. And rightfully so. We should be neutral. But neutrality has gone from this department a long time ago. And one of the worst examples, and I brought this up, we were on Fox and Friends first, and I can't get this image out of my head, and I loved him prior to this. Terry Monahan, the chief of the department, getting down on his knees at a Black Lives Matter protest, holding hands with protesters. And then in the course of preparing this case for trial, I looked for other examples. And I found example after example, you know, black officers holding up the black power fist. And, you know, there were other high level, maybe you know who this is. There were other high level members of the department kneeling down together. I had pictures of them I wanted to introduce kneeling down at these protests. I'm convinced this came from de Blasio, but do you remember, I tried to look it up. There was a, a CEO, I think of the 4-6, a Spanish guy who was told he's got to do this. And he said, no way, and retired. I have more respect for this guy because he stood up for all of us. No, the police department must maintain neutrality. I am not kneeling down with protesters. This guy probably can't buy a drink in the whole city to this day, whereas Monaghan is now retired. That image of him kneeling down as our supreme commander, the chief of the department, it destroyed morale. It destroyed you know, the image of the police department being neutral. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Well, we all saw that. In fact, I live not too far from where that took place. That took place in Washington Square Park. And that precinct commander you referred to, I know who it is. I don't want to mention names, but he's a good friend. Of Please, Kurt the guy's a hero. No, but he's a good friend of Curtis Lee was. So I I'm not surprised by that. Because you know? Curtis, Curtis worked in the Bronx when uh, he was a young guy. He was in uh, worked for uh, McDonald's. He was the manager, of, and he got to friendly with that guy. I just can't remember his name. I want to meet him. I think it begins with a B, Barrera, or something. Yeah, well, was, uh, Cur yeah. Curtis knows him. So, that but, guy's but a that, hero. But that Terry Monaghan thing, you know, Terry's a very nice guy. Wonderful guy. Uh, but I that, thought he was yeah. great. Yes, but that was, uh, I think that was terrible what yeah. he did. We should he, have that inspector on our show. Yeah. We have that oh, inspector please. Well, we have to find out who he is. We'll get him oh, on the we show. Will. We will. <laughs> he needs to be honored because that's what a police commander should be. You stand up and you say, no, I will not do that because it's wrong, number one. We need our commanders to stand up and say, no, this is not a lawful order. I'm not going to follow this. We must maintain neutrality. I'm not going to kneel down with protesters, you know, and, and he should be celebrated for that. When I came in the department in 1959, it was basically apolitical. There was always some politics involved, you know, yeah. in terms of who got promoted. And, um, you know, a lot of, uh, as I recall, Cardinal Spellman was the... Uh, was around. Wow. They called him the powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And most top-level appointments, they had to be cleared through him. That's when the Irish in this city had a great, great present. Yeah. That's changed. Yeah. And I noticed that the department has become more and more political, which is a big mistake. Politics should stay out of police work. It's terrible. Um, and, and it's so political now that a lot of people in the department, you know, when you, when you reach the level of captain, 
that's because you took all the exams. After yeah. that, it says, you know, discretionary appointments. Sure. The civil service, as of right, you get promoted. But beyond captain, it's not as right. of right. And that's it's when it becomes very discretion. political. Now, you don't have that in the fire department. The fire department, they test all the way up to chief of the department. No kidding. I didn't know. That. Yes. The fire department. They My don't father have never mentioned that. Yeah, They don't have <laughs> discretionary promotions like that. So wow. the politics well. are basically out of it. And I saw this, you know, in my own career. I was a captain a long time, and I had a pretty big mouth. I stood up for everybody, and that held me back, you yeah. know. And I saw people who were basically incompetent, you know, move up through politics. And this yeah. disturbs me very much, that how political the department has become. I hate oh. that. You know, I had a great CEO, uh, Victor Werbke. He was the CEO, and I got modified. Oh, he, he was in the 104, but I got modified and sent to Lefrak, and he then was the CEO there. What a great man this was, a decent man who, you know, the integrity of, of this man was just incredible. And he was one of those guys that would stand up and say when something was wrong. And they didn't like that. So he remained a captain well, until that he was retired. I, I was a captain for uh, about 12 years. I think <laughs> after 10 years, you retire at the DI, you right? Retire as, after you're 10 or years, you retire as an inspector. Inspector, yeah. So you get so the inspector side. When he retired, he got it. But, but why uh, don't you tell us uh, what you've been doing beyond the police department in terms of uh, some of the cases you've been involved in? I've had a lot of very high-profile cases. And to be honest with you, it's, uh, it, it's just like pinch me. You know, I, I never thought I would do this. I was just the dumb boxer, you know, the uh, the idiot uh, foot cop. You know, what do they call them? The flat foot. Uh, flat, uh, yeah, you flat, know. Flat yeah, but uh, no, you're far from dumb. Yeah. Absolutely, you know. And not only a great boxer and was a great cop and you're a great attorney and you're doing God's work. But um, but if you can tell us about another What's case you're most, working your, on. Most, your favorite case. What one of my favorite cases, I really didn't. It wasn't that much litigation, like it didn't go with a trial, but I represented Michael Chiesa, who's a, an MMA fighter, in the, in the yeah, this, Mike Chiesa was on the bus that Conor McGregor is notoriously attacked at the Barclays Center. Now, I can't really discuss, you know, the details of that case because it has now been settled and, and resolved. But I got to tell you, when you ask me my favorite cases, because here I am, a former amateur boxer myself, now being able to represent who one of the greatest, in my mind, fighters in my Chiesa. And it was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So, and I've represented a number of different fighters, you know, some for unfortunate circumstances, criminal cases, but it's such a pleasure. I have the honor of being a part of two of the most incredible communities, the police community, which I love representing. I, I represent so many officers of different ranks and the boxing community. These are some of the greatest people, you know, the most humble and wonderful people giving and trusting people. I'm representing a fighter right now He's 25 and one. He's an incredible fighter, but he's having a little contract issue with his promoter. So, but the funny part about this is he trained at the same gym I trained at. His manager, Pete Brodsky, 
was my trainer when I trained in the amateurs. His trainer, Scott Lopek, and I used to be in the amateurs together. Like we trained together. So the connection is just so incredible. So when they asked me to, you know, to help out with this, it was like, yeah, are you kidding? You know, <laughs> this is my chance to give back and to help a young guy who's struggling, you know, to push back against, you know, the promoters. And it, it's it's just been so blessing, blessed for me to to do this and these different forums, the boxing community and the law enforcement community, but so many, you know, I had the Spitzer case as well. You know, the young right. lady who was charged with extorting Elliot Spitzer for $400,000. I represented her and, you know, it's really incredible because the law is based on logic. It's reasonableness. It's logic. Law school was a breeze to me, you know, having been an older student, I lived my life before going to law school. So I was a cop. I was sued as a cop a couple of times. I was locking people up. So criminal law came easy. So I was arrested. I was arrested as a cop. And, went through the circle. Circle. and then, you know, so I also got divorced twice as I loved it so much. And so I knew a little bit of family law. I had a custody issue going on at that time. So I bought houses. So real, like now I was in the class learning, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's why they did that. It was just so natural to go to law school after having lived a little bit in the world. So uh, that, that was just such a wonderful experience. But getting back to the Spitzer kids, I got to just tell you, like the logic of people. Elliot Spitzer, the former governor. So naturally, he's dealing with the high end of the prosecutor's office, like the top tier people who are managing his case. And they would come to me and they're like, Joe, Joe, look at the evidence. Why don't you want to? I never once asked for a plea bargain. What are you going to do? I said, well, look, I don't know. This is the way I look at it. Option A, she pleads guilty. She goes to jail. She gets deported. Case is over. We're done. Option B, she pleads not guilty. We go to trial. I get to cross-examine the former governor about their entire relationship and everything that went on. I'm in the newspaper every day, and we might win. I'm going with option B. <laughs> it was a no-brainer. So finally, they come to their senses and they're like, all right, we'll, we'll dismiss the charges against her from Spitzer. There was also another guy that brought into the case as a second victim. So they dismissed the charges pertaining to Spitzer and they had her plead guilty to attempted pettit larceny, a B misdemeanor, to satisfy the rest of the case. Now, I have to go to her with that because, number one, it's a petty offense. It's not a deportable offense. She'll be released immediately. So it's her option. Do you want to go to trial and fight the whole thing? Or do you want to take that? And she said, look, you mean I could leave today? Yeah, you'll leave today. You know, because she was held on a million dollars bail. So, but, you know, cases like that, I always, as a cop, right, I hate bullies. I hate them. 
And I loved being the cop to fight back and push back against bullies. And I'm doing it now in my law practice. There's no bigger bully than Elliot Spitzer, you know, who bullies people around this young girl. So, but one of my favorite cases that I am so proud of this cop, I got from Greg Mack. Do you remember Greg Mack? Sure. Yeah. Another Midtown North cop. Uh, something magical about that place. We all kind of went on to do like great things. Greg became a psychologist, got his PhD while he was on the job. He began working in the department's psych services, doing the applicant screening of all the new guys coming on the job. So I was getting a lot of those cases too, because everyone knows my story and they're like, Hey, you got rejected. Go to this guy, Joe Murray. This guy's a fighter. He'll, you know, if if he can't beat him in court, he'll beat him out of court, you know. So I get Greg and we work together on a number of these cases where I would refer him people. He'd do an evaluation. He'd look at their stuff because he sat in that chair at Left Rack doing these evaluations. So there's no better person than Greg Mack to do the evaluation. So we would go back and forth where he'll refer me a case. I'll send him a case. So he comes to me one day and he says, Joe, I have to send this client to you. I gave him your number. He is the Black Serpico. He's a Mount Vernon police officer that has a story you're not going to believe. And Mount Vernon, as you guys know, is a very small town with a department of about 190 police officers. So it's like a a mid-sized NYPD precinct, you know, but you know, there are things that we take for granted. Like we always in our job, IAB, you never know where they are. They're always out there. You don't know who they are. There's two IAB cops in Mount Vernon. Everyone knows who they are. They know what cars they drive. They know when they're working. So it became like when the cat's away, the mice will play and corruption kind of you know, started festering in the department. This guy is a Jamaican immigrant, came here from Jamaica, became a citizen, very intelligent guy. He had some mixed feelings about the police department and someone challenged him and said, you know what, why don't you go do something about it? He became a police officer. He was a very hard worker and he worked his way into narcotics. He was developing, you know, uh, informants and really engaging the job, like doing it the right way. And then he saw guys in the unit doing shortcuts and doing things illegal and doing things improper. And then some heavy handed people that were, you know, getting carried away. And he just said, look, I don't want to be involved in this anymore. And he left the unit. They got so much pressure from the supervisors and other cops, you don't leave narcotics. If you leave narcotics, you're never going back there again. And it's a small department, and it's not like our job. There's very limited places to go. So he said, I just don't want to be part of what's going on there. And he left. So they brought in a new chief, this Chief Duncan, who was, you know, very uh, reform-minded and made some changes and asked him, invited him to come back in because they were mostly white cops in this narcotics unit in a predominantly black city. And, you know, based on what he was telling me was going on, it was a lot of shady stuff happening. And it's natural because when you look at the disenfranchised community that you're dealing with, junkies, right? Crackheads, it's your word against theirs. So 
to some people with lesser integrity, they look at that as an opportunity. So, you know, I, I commend him for what he did. He went back into the unit. He went back into the unit. He started working again. And, you know, then he saw that this was Duncan left. She left the job and it was going back to the same old stuff. And he just couldn't take it anymore and, and said, that, you know, was reporting this corruption. Mm. So they retaliate against him. I'm sure you guys are familiar with uh, the department's ability to do that. And they retaliated against him so bad, they maligned this guy, sent him for a bogus fitness for duty exam where this doctor came back and said he's a danger to himself and others, took his guns away, put him on unpaid leave. And when you're on unpaid leave, you have one year to be able to get yourself reinstated to get back to full duty or you're terminated. And that was their plan. Thank God he reaches out to Greg Mack. Greg Mack starts working on the case. He sends him to me. We start working on the case. The first real win we got in that case is wasn't even mine. He had another lawyer doing his pistol permit. He had a pistol permit even before he got on the job. And he challenged it in Supreme Court. And the judge, after reading Greg Mack's resume about what he's done his whole career and, and his evaluation, and he says, wait a second, you have a doctor saying that he's a danger to himself and others, but you take three months before you actually act on it? So how much of a danger really could he have been? And then I have this guy, Greg Mack, who his resume is just so impeccable. And the work he did on that and his evaluation contradicts everything that you did. So he restored his firearms. We got him restored to duty. But while he was out, again, we talked about this early on. When you're in the hopper and you're the guy who's, you know, you're in the frying pan, it becomes lonely. Yeah, People right. walk yeah. away from you. People just abandon you. So he felt that abandonment. But in the fight to get back while he was on this unpaid leave, mm -hmm. some of the cops would call him. They would talk to him. So he started recording some of these cops because these are the guys who would not come forward, but they were telling him what was happening, who's doing what, who's beating up this one, who's, you know, and he recorded all this stuff to support what he's been saying all along. So we shared that with the district attorney. The district attorney covered it all up. I'm happy to say he's been voted out of office, Anthony Scarpino. That guy was horrible. He lied to everyone. He lied to us. He said, oh, we're investigating. We're investigating it. Here's where I really got him, because once we got him back to work, there was a new police commissioner, and I met with him. It was so funny. Ernie Morales, talk about full circle. Ernie Morales became the first deputy commissioner. He was on our job and retired. He was on a boxing team. I call Ernie right, up. Yes. Yep. My Ernie. <laughs> what a weird coincidence this is. Right. So I talked to him about what was going on. We get a meeting with Ernie and the new commissioner. And we sit down and we tell the commissioner, look, we're here to help you. We want to help. We love cops. We want this to be something that cops are proud to work at. So in doing that, we shared these recordings with the commissioner. 
So the commissioner comes back to me like two weeks later and he says, you're not going to believe this. The DA, Scarpino, found out that he now has a copy of these recordings and that police commissioner, Glenn Scott, he sent them out to be transcribed so that we could all read them and you don't have to listen to them. So Scarpino found out that he had them transcribed and he said, could you please send me your copies of the transcripts? He put them in a drawer, closed the drawer, did nothing with them. That was the proof, you know, and I felt vindicated because I was attacking the heck out of him and he got voted out. But here's a guy who said he was investigating this corruption, did not even bother to transcribe them to do any investigation that he's now calling the police commissioner. Oh, I, I hear you transcribed them. Can you give us the transcripts? Crazy. Outrageous. So Crazy. wait, one last thing on this. So much to talk about. I'm sorry. I know this is your show. We'll have you back on. <laughs> I'll Joe. never we'll have be you back on. Back. No, we'll have you back on. After years of fighting this fight with Mount Vernon, we tried to get Cuomo, the attorney general, nothing, nothing. You know what? They'll go after you if you're a Republican, but a black city with a black mayor and a black police commissioner and a black community, they wouldn't go near this thing. And what about the people in the community who are being abused? What about their lives? Don't their lives matter? Is it so political that we can't, you know, just put politics aside and do the right thing? You know, so I was very disappointed. But I am happy to report that of the strangest places, Joe Biden came to the rescue. Joe Biden directed the attorney general to commence a pattern and practice investigation of the Mount Vernon Police Department. I think there were four in the country at the time, and he designated Mount Vernon because of the work that my client did. I'm so proud of that. That's great. That's great. Incredible. But, Joe, I want to thank you for coming on Cop Talk. Wait, I got hours more. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're going to come on, part two. But but some great cases, some interesting stories, and it was great going down. Memory Lane as well. From yeah. North. Oh, such but good With memories. that said, Captain. You're doing great work. Thank you, Cap. Keep it up, Joe Murray. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you soon. Absolutely. You. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.